welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I am Mahima Kapoor Researcher and Assistant Editor at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Eva Meetya Nusandhan Sanstan, Nai Dilli. Welcome you all to the IMPRI hashtag Web Policy Talk. The COVID-19 pandemic has deepened the pre-existing inequalities across socioeconomic groups. The distressing images of migrant exodus remain etched in our minds, but not, not a lot has changed in terms of data collection and policy making since then to understand the concept of cohesive development and its correlation with inequality specifically the migration crisis of europe and the usa we have gathered for a talk under the series the state of development discourses hashtag cohesive #development with professor amya kumar bachi on the role of equality for cohesive development This deliberation is being organized by the IMPRI Center for Human Dignity and Development and Center for Development Communication and Studies Jaipur. I feel honored to introduce the moderator Professor Sunindra. Sir is the former director AN Sinha Institute of Social Studies Patna and advisor at SEDEX and IMPRI. Professor Ray has 35 years of experience in research and teaching. in the field of environmental economics political economy of development rural development and institutional economics his papers have been published extensively in reputed national and international journals he has authored several books including industrial growth and protection in india natural resources organization and technology linkages agricultural services and the poor management of natural resources institutions for sustainable livelihood and theorizing cohesive development and alternative paradigm welcome sir i feel privileged to introduce the speaker professor amya kumar bachi sir is an emeritus professor institute of development studies kolkata and an adjunct professor monash university he has taught researched and guided research in many institutions and universities across the globe he has been a member of the state planning board government of west bengal governing body of the indian council of world affairs new delhi and the institute of the social of the studies in industrial development new delhi among others he has acted as external collaborator and consultant for the ilo unclad and sk He founded the Institute of Development Studies Kolkata in 2002 and directed it until his retirement in 2012. His research interests include finance, human development issues and other aspects of development and the prospects of democracy in a globalizing world. His books include The Political Economy of Underdevelopment, The Development State in History and In the 20th Century. democracy and development capture and exclude developing economies and the poor in global finance 
in the year 2005, sir received the Padma Shri by the government of India. Welcome, sir. We are fortunate to have Dr. Arup Kumar Sain, Professor Atanu Sain Gupta, and Dr. Gopal Krishna, and Dr. Mansi Bal Bhargava as the discussants of the session. Dr. Sain is an associate professor, Department of Commerce, Serampore College, Kolkata. Welcome, sir. Professor Singh Gupta is a professor, Department of Economics, the University of Burdwan, West Bengal. Welcome, sir. Dr. Krishna is a guest fellow, Faculty of Law, Humboldt University, Berlin, and fellow, IRGAC, Berlin. Welcome, sir. And Dr. Bhargava is an entrepreneur, researcher, and educator, and former executive director at South Asia Consortium for Interdisciplinary Water Resources Studies. Welcome, ma'am. Now I invite Professor Ray to take the proceedings further, and we look forward to learning from our esteemed gathering. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mohima. Thank you so much for your nice introduction. Uh, I respected Professor Bhakti, enlightened discussions. Uh, Dr. Hujun Kumar, <clears throat> the director of Empri, and his colleagues. Uh, first of all, I must uh, thank Dr. Hujun Kumar and his colleagues to have given me an opportunity to moderate the session in which Professor, no less than Professor Dagchi is going to deliver the lecture on very important topic, role of equality for cohesive development. To be honest with you, I feel privileged to moderate the discussion on such a, an important talk to be delivered by no less than Professor Omiyakumar Bagchi. I still remember the kind of, of course, I always treat him as my teacher, although directly I was not taught by him, but still learned quite a bit, have been learning. But outstanding scholar is quoted, his works have been quoted all over the world. Those who know his works, they will be saying the same thing, what I'm talking about. The one of the significant works that he did I thought that I must bring it to your notice, maybe that many of you know. The perilous passage, mankind and the global ascendancy of capital. This has come out in 2008 by Cambridge Publications. The outstanding work uh, is quoted widely throughout the world. So I feel, feel so happy that he is here with us with Impri to deliver his talk. Maybe the today's discussion, the migration crisis, it could be legacy of the work that has been doing, but fortunately this is an area. I think this, sir, uh, there are 20, around 20 lectures have taken place over here, also organized by Impri, but focusing on this aspect was there anywhere. This is the first kind, first of its kind being focused the how imperialism, but the past history of what is called exploiting the third world countries have been creating a different kind of a problem altogether, even in some name or other, like migration crisis that you have highlighted. 
is something which is very important for us to learn about how they have been doing. Whether we talk about what is called Latin American countries and America or North America and the Latin American countries, Africa and other and being what is called resources being exploited, taken over by the same age-old imperialist power like Europe, or you talk about what is called the NATO smashing the Middle East or Central East, Central Asia or the Middle East. Now the problem is that uh, this is something which that you know abstract that you have already pointed out as something which is very asked for us to know more, more, more about it. It is it is a global power structure that has been continuing. It's manifesting in a different form altogether. And it will continue to form because it is, as you said, the ascendancy of capital. It's capital that has been determining everything. What is true, perhaps, have to begin with. Well, this is what my presumption is true for that you are talking about, going to talk about, which is going to be enlightened for us. At the same time, it's very important for us to take note of what has been the amount or number of displacement in countries like India for the natural resources by the MNCs and all that, especially in places like Chhattisgarh. It reminds me, maybe that we can talk about later to have a contact connection between the two. But then again, at the micro level, the country level, this is also has been happening. And you have the fascist both like Salvajudo. You had this kind of history just a few years ago. Well, this is what has been the story all over. It's the capital that has been determining everything. And that is what exactly is all about. I hope, I'm sure your talk is going to be teaching every one of us in a different way as to how really the unequal society is something which can never really bring about a change for the society when things have been happening like that. Now, the question is that, sir, question is that, what's the way out? That is precisely where I would like to ask a question later on, perhaps a cohesive development approach that you have talked about, which is very nicely right in the interaction. Cohesive development could be an approach, could be a paradigm that need to be followed later on to really rectify a situation like this, to come out, the humanity can come out from this kind of unequal society. Purely for the survival of the human race today, that is something which has been a great challenge for every one of us to think about. With this very brief introduction, I must also share with you, Professor Parkchi, in our volume, that theorizing cohesive development made a very fascinating, stimulating contribution in the paper. Is, is, is added value to the book to a large extent. I really am thankful. I take this opportunity to thank him again for this one. With very few, very few words, may I request now Professor Parkji to uh, speak on, to talk, to talk on what's called the topic, which is inequality. Uh, uh, role, of, role of equality for cohesive development, how the equality can deal work for cohesive development and how the inequality can be really banished. Thank you so much. Now may I request Professor Parkshi to take over the mic. Let me first of all thank Impe, um, its director, Dr. Arjun Kumar and Professor Shumai for arranging this very important for me. Uh, uh, I have met quite a number of times, out of sin, quite a number of times, but the other discussions I have not met before. So may I also 
equality and inequality has been debated in the world very long time. Human beings, from the very beginning that they began to live in communities, unfortunately, has uh, has had to have had to struggle against inequality. Even the primitive communist societies had the differences between the chief and the others, and between men and women. But these inequalities increased much more with what uh, is called civil society or civilization, as Rousseau, who was the first thinker who systematically talked about the, about the origins of inequality, said the first man who enclosed a piece of ground and said that this is mine was the founder of civil society, which has led to the so much, uh, so many murders, so many wars, and so much discontent throughout the world. But unfortunately, Rousseau talked only about uh, the need for equality between men, uh, but not among women. He thought that women should serve men. The later on, when Tom Paine also talked about the rights of man, it was rights of man, and it was against him that Mary Wollstonecraft wrote her vindication of the rights of women. But I think the first thinker who uh, systematically investigated and demanded the equality of men and was the Marquis de Condorcet. In, already in 1980s, he, uh, sorry, 1780s, he was writing about that. So I won't go into that history here. And as Professor Ray has already indicated, my topic of discussion today is international migration. So I'll uh, come to uh, that topic now. Now, the, uh, uh, in recent times, for the, for the last, say, 10 years or so, or much more uh, strikingly from 2015, the newspapers have been full of uh, the migration crisis of Europe and the migration crisis of the United States. The migration crisis of Europe is really not the migration crisis of Europe, but the migration crisis of African countries and of the Middle East. And as Professor Ray has already indicated the root cause of this uh, migration crisis, really the earlier onslaughts on, on the countries uh, that they colonized practically all of Africa, except Ethiopia, which was free until Mussolini occupied it in the 1930s, and then it, again it became free. They occupied practically most of Asia, except uh, China formerly, and Thailand, uh, and uh, they also occupied practically all of the Middle Eastern countries except Turkey uh, by the end of the Second World War. These have left deep impressions on these countries. Uh, I'll come to some of the, uh, the, the uh, definite results of this. The, one of the interesting points is that while the Western countries preached uh, and practiced in many cases, not always, because as you know, in England, the Protestantism was the accepted religion from the time of Henry VIII until 18, 
uh, I think 30, uh, when, uh, until when Roman Catholicism was practically uh, either banned or was uh, the Roman Catholics are treated as second class citizens. Uh, the same thing can be said about France and so on. But from the time of the of uh, uh, the Enlightenment, particularly from the time of Rousseau, Voltaire, later on Condorcet, and the French Revolution, they preached uh, rationality, they preached secularism, and gradually most of the European countries became secular in, a, in particular ways. There are still problems about that secularism because, uh, for example, in France, Orthodox Jews are uh, allowed to use caps on their heads. Hijabs have been banned in public schools and in many other public places. So that secularism is also faulty. But given that, on the whole, these countries can be, but interestingly enough, in the Middle Eastern countries, they backed the Islamist, Islamists. They backed Muslim Brotherhood against Jamal Abdel Nasser. They backed Mujahideen against the uh, uh, well communist-leaning regime of Afghanistan. Uh, the uh, revolution there was not really brought out by the Soviet Union. It, it, when they, they were attacked by the uh, Mujahideen, then the Soviet Union came in. The uh, revolution was carried out by two communist parties, which unfortunately fought with one another, Khalq and Parcham. And these uh, parties started to educate the Afghans, gave the, gave the women more rights than they had ever enjoyed. And that they had some success and popular support was shown that the last ruler, Najibullah, hung on until 1992, two years after the fall of the Soviet Union. But with the support of Mujahideen, the uh, uh, Americans made the Russians embroiled in the war. And it was one of the causes of the downfall of the Soviet Union because they became overstressed and couldn't simply afford this kind of war. And they thought that the, the, it was worth uh, uh, the expenditure for doing that. But what happened was that as a result, Al-Qaeda came up with Osama bin Laden as the, as the leader. And then they carried out the 9-11 uh, attack on the World Trade Tower in New York and on the Pentagon. And when Iraq was virtually destroyed by two different war, wars against Iraq, the uh, Islamic State of uh, Iraq and uh, Syria came up. And this ISIS has now had many sister organizations coming up in Africa. Its own tentacles have spread from uh, down to Mozambique, where they're given a lot of has also spawned cities like Al Sawab in Somalia, uh, like uh, Boko Haram in, in uh, Nigeria, and many other outfits in 
places like Mali and uh, uh, Sudan and so on. Now, take the case of uh, Iraq. Saddam Hussein came up with American support. Earlier on, the hmm. Iraqi Communist Party was the biggest community in the Middle East. In order to dislodge that, they encouraged the Ba'athist Party, of which Saddam was a leader. And when Saddam came up, they used Saddam against Iran. They supported Saddam, in, they in fact instigated Saddam to carry, attack Iran, and they supported Saddam during that period. But when, but Saddam proved to be a recalcitrant collaborator, he then attacked Kuwait, which had been separated by the British in order pride, primarily to get better hold of the oil of Kuwait. So when Saddam attacked Kuwait, Americans attacked him and uh, defeated him and uh, imposed, I, I'm saying Americans, but really it is the whole NATO powers. Uh, the United States is only one member of that, but the, one of the leading, in fact, the leading member now. And these NATO powers then imposed sanctions. And uh, Jean Dres had estimated that by the 1990s, that to the death, extra death of at least 500,000 children in Iraq. Then again, around the beginning of the thousands, they attacked Saddam, Saddam, and absolutely hung on. They again attacked Saddam on the entirely false accusation that Saddam possessed uh, weapons of mass destruction. That allegation was disproved by the United Nations uh, inspectors led by El Baradei, an Egyptian, and also by the arms expert of Britain. Tony Blair, unfortunately, was the labor leader at that time. He was as bad as George Bush. And that man had to commit suicide because the government would not allow him to uh, publish his results at that time. So this is the way that the uh, NATO powers have treated this Middle East, Middle Eastern country. Not only in the case of Iraq, also in the case of Somalia, it was American intervention in support of one faction of the, uh, of the, the Somalian war leaders against the other that caused civil war. And I had the experience when I was visiting Nairobi as a uh, reviewer for the Codesia research projects. I was staying in a hotel, and there was a Somalian uh, girl also staying there. She was probably already in the United States or Britain. And she told me uh, with tears in her eyes that one of the of her cousins who was staying in a camp in uh, uh, Kenya was not allowed to enter the hotel because she did not have the right clothing. Now that's just one of the human conditions that they have reduced them to. Now, let me get on with the narrative now.
uh, let let us take the take several other cases in the Middle East. Libya was ruled for a very long time, I think from about 69 or 70 until the uh, when 2010 or so. I can't remember the exact year. But the figures totally authoritarian, there's no question about that. But so were all the Middle Easterns at that time. But he, he had the ability to use his oil to make uh, Libya, in fact, the richest country in Africa, barring Botswana and South Africa. When Gaddafi was attacked by the NATO powers the, and was uh, killed in a very cruel way, a civil war started because the government imposed by the outside powers was not accepted by the, uh, by, uh, the military leaders loyal to Gaddafi. And one particular leader, Haftar, went on fighting him. So that caused enormous damage among the Libyans and displacement of the people. Every civil war causes an enormous displacement and leads to the increase of flow of migrants. Libya then was made an outpost for Europe and people trying to reach Europe from Africa and other Middle Eastern countries were detained there and were treated extremely cruelly by the security guards. Uh, take another case, the case of Yemen. Yemen, well, again, there the uh, ruler imposed by the outside forces was opposed by the Houthis, which are, who were partly backed by Iran, but Iran was at a distance, and Houthis uh, have uh, go, go, gone on fighting uh, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates until now. You have seen in the papers that they bombed the Abu Dhabi airport and some people were killed, including two Indians. Now, in the, this war has led to what the United Nations has called the greatest humanitarian uh, disaster in recent history. In all these cases, there have been enormous numbers of migrants coming out trying to reach Europe because that's the only place they know they can get some security and some income. Now, the, uh, the, the uh, yes, take for example, the case of war in Syria which is now 10 years old. The Assad regime was authoritarian and there are protests against it. NATO powers encouraged these protests and tried to effect a regime change. Were there no other authoritarian regimes in the Middle East? Israel was engaged in ethnic cleansing of the Arabs, defying international law, even UN assembly resolutions, but with the strong support of NATO powers. Saudi Arabia was not just authoritarian, 
but medieval in its punishment methods, I think they still cut off hands as, a, as a, one of the measures of punishment. And it's treatment of women, let alone the immigrants who come in for domestic work. The same description will be valid for Qatar and the Emirate uh, sheikdoms, but the NATO powers would not lift a finger for bringing down their degree of authoritarianism or the long drawn out genocide of the Palestinians affected by the Israels. But they wanted a regime change in Syria because the ruling regime was secular. And more aligned with Russia. Uh, what happened after NATO intervention? The country was divided. There was a prolonged civil war. In fact, defying all our, our earlier precedents, Turkey came in, on, in support of Russia because Syrian refugees were crowding into Turkey, and Turkey wanted to prevent that kind of thing. Uh, there, there was enormous displacement of the civilian population and endless suffering for them. And Syrian refugees formed the front of the so-called migration crisis of Europe. The European countries are not going to welcome them, except for Germany under uh, Angela Merkel. I, I think under the new so-called leftist regime, the situation will change. Except for Germany, none of the other countries were welcoming. The targets of the uh, immigrants were Italy, France, Britain, and Germany. Uh, the, the point is that the uh, countries from which the uh, uh, migrants originated were very much poorer than the European countries. I'll just cite some figures here. For example, the incomes of Switzerland, all in 2020 US dollars, Norway, United States, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, and Italy were 80,296, 75,428, 59,937, that is the United States, 44,680, 30,827, 39,532, and 32,366, the lowest in Italy, respectively. The GDP per capita, for example, of Afghanistan, Yemen, and Somalia were $509, just $509, $8,249, and $399. And Somalians are crowding into war-torn Yemen. Where will they go? That is the nearest point that they, they can think of. They just come across the channel and enter that country. In all these cases of civil wars, as, was, as I have already said, the basic cause is that the Western countries have imposed 
their own men as rulers of these countries. And the point is that once the civil war starts, the Western countries can't do anything about that. And they don't want to do anything. The United Nations calls for settlement. They try to, well, how will they settle? Unless they actually can really give proper aid to the, these countries unconditionally and allow the people to choose their own rulers, the civil wars will go on. So once they simulate the civil wars, then they just leave, leave the country's population in, in large. in trying to reach Europe across the Mediterranean at a very conservative estimate uh, between 2014 and 2021, 21,894 migrants made a watery death. This is an underestimate because in many cases, these, when the boats sink in the Mediterranean, nobody knows because they, they were all undocumented migrants. Moreover, several hundreds are dying every year trying to cross the English Channel from France to Britain uh, uh, to be detained in the camps of a very unwelcoming Priti Patel. That is also an irony. Priti Patel is an immigrant into the United States, in, in the United Kingdom, and she has been the most horribly oppressive Home Minister as far as migrants are concerned there. It's like uh, a, a crowded bus. When somebody tries to get in, in many cases, there are people who uh, get uh, somebody's hand and take them in. But some others say, no, Dada, no, there is no place for it. <laughs> That's the attitude of these immigrants in, in the United Kingdom. They're doing very well. Rishi uh, Sunak uh, is the finance minister there. Priti Patel is the home minister. And there are several other persons like that. Let us now turn to the migration crisis of the United States. Like the case of the would-be migrants from Haiti, take the case of the would-be migrants from Haiti. The political turbulence and the poverty of the country is Washington's making. <coughs> President Woodrow Wilson sent Marines to Haiti between nine, it is a, you know, once the, uh, the uh, President Monroe promulgated the Monroe Doctrine, which said that no outside power would uh, be allowed to uh, interfere in the affairs of, the, uh, of Latin America. Uh, only once this was violated when the French imposed uh, Maximilian as the uh, President of Mexico, but he was soon thrown out. But they also wanted the rulers to quote, uh, quote out to, the, uh, to Washington. They regarded the whole of Latin America, after, particularly after the British hegemony was over, as their backyard. And uh, uh, not only Latin America, but uh, not only South America, but Central America and the Caribbean. So take the case of Haiti. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson sent Marines to Haiti between, it was the first country which had uh, liberated the Blacks and was ruled by the Blacks from the 
1800 onwards. Uh, to between 1915 and 1934. The United States handpicked the country's leaders, imposed forced labor on peasants, brutally repressed the Kakos rebellion, and under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a great president as far as the United States is concerned, ripped up the country's revolutionary constitution and imposed a new one that allowed foreign ownership of the country's land. To ensure order, when uh, it left, the US created and backed the dreaded Haitian military, the forces armies of armies of Haiti, whose only function was to repress the country's people. During the Cold War, the US backed the brutal dictatorship of Francois Papa Doc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier as an anti-communist counterweight to Fidel Castro's Cuba. The Duvaliers ruled from 1957 to 1986 through state terror carried out by its murderous paramilitary, What Washington's tolerance, if not encouragement, the father-son dictatorship killed as many as 60,000 people, especially socialists and advocates of democracy and social reform. The legacy of Toto Makut and the US war on drugs is such that recently a Haitian president was assassinated by Colombian mercenaries in collaboration with local gangs, and the next president had to flee for fear of his life. No wonder thousands of Haitians tried to reach the United States only to be detained by the Trump era policy of Fortress USA continued by President Biden and deported back to Haiti again. From the 19th century, the United Food Company and other US corporations created banana republics in Central America, bribing local politicians to overlook the savage repression of workers unconscionable exploitation of prisons and preventing any attempt at industrialization and upliftment. Washington did more than that. It sent in its army to dislodge any leader with democratic or egalitarian intentions. In 1952, it removed Gustavo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala, who tried to introduce land reforms uh, in the 1980s, it financed and armed the paramilitary contras to fight the Sandinistas, who had thrown out the brutal Somozista regime in Nicaragua. More recently, it removed Manuel Zelaya, the democratically elected president of Honduras, by effect effecting a military coup. In 2018, from Honduras alone, migrants numbering between 4,000 and 10,000 were trying to reach the United States by traveling on foot via Mexico. Many of them die on the road out of thirst or starvation. Many of them are drowned in the river Rio Grande. Most of them are detained in Mexico or in detention camps at the US border, but they're horribly treated 
children, for example, were separated from parents in a routine ma manner before being turned back. The story of Honduras is repeated in every Central American country. Between 1994 and 2017, at least 10,000 people died trying to cross the Mexico West border. The United States also trained many of the dictators and top military leaders of Latin America in a school of the Americans. It's war on drugs and use of local police and paramilitary forces led to the wide diffusion of arms among drug ridden, among drug peddlers and other gangs and led to endemic violence in all the countries of Central America and Mexico. The drug gangs are so powerful in Mexico that the police often look the other way around when the drug gang is operating. This endemic violence also depresses productive investment and further depresses the per capita incomes of these republics. The migrants are fleeing both the poverty and violence. So the US migration crisis is its own creation. The United States would not welcome my migrants, even though the US fire service and the uh, cultivation of fruits in California would come to a halt if these unwelcome and ill-treated migrants were not there. Now, with all this, what is the kind of policy that we should advocate the, that India should pursue? India should, in every case, in every forum, in the United Nations in Assembly, uh, uh, should plead that the Europeans should accept the migrants because it is against international law when people are seeking asylum for genuine reasons, whether reasons of economic uh, uh, deprivation or reasons of political oppression. It should also interact with the UN organizations like UNICEF, uh, FAO, UNHCR, uh, UNDP, in order to see how much they can do in order to alleviate the condition of the migrants. This, this should be the uh, India's policies. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this government has not been at all active in any of these areas. India has a long pull in the United Nations Assembly after all. It was the leader of the G20 countries in the 1970s when the new economic order was being bruited about. Now, the, the story of international migration has many parallels in our country. In our country also, after the promulgation of the Citizenship Amendment Act, many of the people who have lived here for generations, many of their members have served in, in, in India's armed forces, have been declared as illegal aliens or foreigners. Particularly in Assam, they have been detained in camps and there they have been very badly treated all through. The newspapers are all the time uh, full of that. Apart from that, during the pandemic, when lockdown was suddenly declared, the migrants desperately tried to reach their home. And on their way, they are suffocated in overcrowded railway carriages. They died of thirst and hunger. Many of them were crossed by the railway tracks uh, on by incoming trains because they were resting on those tracks uh, out of sheer tiredness. And many of them were crossed by trucks. And when they reached home, there was no jobs for them because they had left 
precisely because there are no jobs there and there is no state policy in most cases for treating these migrants the only exceptions i know is to some extent orisha and kerala there particularly in kerala they have made special provisions for the uh, treatment of the migrant workers <laughs> these migrants are not only deprived of uh, of employment and income that children cannot go to school they do not have any stable uh, uh, place to occupy uh, there have been it is not just during the pandemic but throughout uh, the last uh, almost after independence the, these documents have these have been documented by people like uh, ian bremen and his associates uh, several workers in andhra pradesh they worked in brick kilns they worked in sugar farms in uh, gujarat without any security and without any prospect of further improvement in their lives what we should demand is that there should be a national policy for treatment of these migrants to see that when they do not have jobs they have a minimum income wherever they work india after all is one single country it is not divided between different countries so either the central government or the through the central government the state government should support those migrants who do not have any work at that time and should make provision for the particularly for the healthcare and education of the children and the mothers of those children there are many other policies that uh, i am sure impre workers and the discussions can think of i'll just stop here <clears throat> yeah uh thank you sir thank you professor bagchit uh is a the rich exposure of the kind of a game being played in the name of democracy especially by the imperialist forces at the world scale is basically as i could understand is the power play or the game being played by the big capital or the corporate or the international capital that mediates its interest through the power structure that is something which has been playing havoc to the human life the whole question finally comes will the civilization progress is no it's stuck up with the migration crisis that you talk about now not only at the international and also starts upon indian situation still i remember it was estimated to be 40 crore that one third of the total population in india on migration They're vulnerable. They're pushed to the poverty. That is something which can you imagine a country which feels which talks about that going to the reach the pedestal of the development and something third or fourth country developed country in the world going to declare, and this is the state of affairs today in country like India. Even the latest report of Oxfam is something eye-opening for every one of us, and something again you find the sixth estimate. See, it's more than six crore people pushed to the poverty. Again, back. That is what has been the unequal society. Is it that we can think about what is called is a power structure both at the national level as well as the international level, where into which the the corporate capital or the international capital 
or capital, you know, maintains its own interest and sets up everything, the policy and so on and so forth. Maybe that space could be created to see something good happens, to at least see the civilization crisis doesn't really get into we. But anyway, with this very brief, we felt is something very enlightening for every one of us, especially in the, in the, the kind of migration crisis that you talked about is, uh, you know, is very important for us to learn quite a bit from this story is nothing how imperialism is, has been working at the world level in a different way altogether in the name of democracy. Uh, now may I going to, may I shall open the discussion to the discussion. And I feel really so happy that all Professor Autonu Sengupta, Dr. Gopal Krishna, Dr. Manushi Balbhargava and Dr. Arup Sen, all of you have joined and joined this program. I feel so happy about all that. But before you start, I have forgotten to share something which you must know about. Actually, you know, that is what I was sharing before the talk started by Professor Parkji, that this IMPRI, they opened up this forum to look for different ideas, the new ideas, new approach, thinking of new paradigm of change, all this and this young researchers, they have started working on this one. They have been all thinking together. It's very unique experiment they are doing with this. They do not want to fall in line with what has been happening for centuries or for decades in country like India. They would like to see a difference they want to get out of the box and see what the world could be. That is something which is very important for us to take note of. It is in this context that I thought that this forum could be of great useful for every one of us to learn. There are 20, 20, around 15 to 20 people spoke from countries, from inside and outside, all scholars. And they spoke, they contributed and very fortunate thing, very happy thing to share with you that they are already started documenting and going to bring out a book very shortly uh, based on the presentation and the discussion that takes place. So it's a kind of a small volume they are going to bring out very soon. So uh, that's something which is very encouraging for us to really capture what has been talked about and all being discussed because of the serious points that are being raised about raised and all that in various forums, various discussions. Now may I request Professor Atunu uh, Sengupta so set the ball rolling. There are several issues one can talk about, but whatever you feel like, very frank, free, your reflections, your idea, your understanding, and you add up. That will be really great for us, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to take forward the entire discussion further. Thank you so much. Professor Singhupta, yes. Thank you all. And uh, it is a great opportunity for me to be in front of a great teacher, Professor Amir Kumar Bhakti. His preliminary work on colonial India that started our journey when I was perhaps a first year MSc student in economics, even before that. And then he studies about state bank and all those things. So it is really a great privilege for me to talk before him and to hear his excellent ideas. Now, the point that I would like to trace is about the uh, another perspective which Professor Bakchi has notably made that cohesive development also includes health. 
and the present pandemic has pointed out how the health and the health sector has also been minimalized or corporatized or sort of hegemonized by a hierarchical structure. Now, again, if we ponder through the history, now uh, it is a very influential work by Professor Engels, uh, Frederick Engels, on the conditions of the working class in England which is one of the pioneer books that opened up how living status of the, or the living styles of the workers in the English slums have bringing out a lot of diseases, various contagious diseases and airport diseases, a lot of space. Now, during that time, uh, there were some thinking um, uh, among other uh, uh, British political economist, for example, Malthus, who has pointed out that the poor should die in this way, and there was a, that is poor should not be given ration because that would bid up the price and say to die in this type of health-related issues. And there was also the letter which was pointed out by Professor Amorto Shen in his famous book Justice, the letter that was written to uh, Ricardo by Mill in which Mill felt that though the condition of England is very bad and many people would die, there is no way those people can be saved, saved except to cut off their throat like pigs. So this was the attitude. And in this attitude, a uh, new type of thinking started. Uh, firstly, from the, uh, those who the utopian socialists, some philanthropists, and then a very scientific study of Frederick Engels about the conditions of uh, labor in England brought up these various issues, how health is related to living in very bad um, slums and so on and so forth. And it is very, um, uh, at that time, the contrast was very uh, much because at the same time in the Victorian England, uh, or at that time in the industrial revolution England, we have, we see, lot of advertisement are coming of sprawling countryside home and visitors and greeneries together with the filthy living of the laborers. Then it was uh, Vichyo who took up this issue, Rudolf Vichyo, and he was influenced by Engels, as he has said, and it was he who first pointed out the word called social medicine, and he pointed out that lot of the diseases and a lot of these uh, ailments which people have could have been treated or could have been meted out or at least mitigated if proper atmosphere is created and the pressure on the healthcare in the form of so-called hospitals and all those things could have been substantially reduced. Now we all know that Vicho supported the Paris Commune and after the ruthless uh, persecution of the commune. It is very interesting that I am reading that uh, uh, one of the pioneers of Indian uh, independent movement, Swayamgonath Banerjee, was present at Paris at that time when the the, uh, the, the, uh, the case of the Paris commune, the, when the Paris communists were convicted in that court. See, he, he wrote in his book, A Nation in Making, about a brief chapter of visiting the Paris and meeting the court proceedings of the Paris Communards. Now, whatever it may be, uh, these were the first beginnings that started. 
and um, yeah. however unfortunately there were several reasons why it did not flourish enough one was perhaps the development of the uh, idea of the germ theory which was first started uh, by preliminary finding in germany and then pasteur which posited that germs germ um, uh, was the basic causes of the diseases and if proper uh, attack is made on the germs the most of our diseases could be dissolved and finally by the uh, report which is known as the flexner report in usa it is given a more or less a uh, mainstream basis and all things were uh, were mainly uh, attested to those views of uh, germ theory and preventing the germs though this alternative thinking was there now uh, it is not to say that germ theory was wrong what was there according to walzin and nohoro there was actually a shift from a mono uh, causal to a um, from a multi causal sorry to a mono causal before and there uh, the germ theory the multiple causes were coming on but as if the new system of health care and the new system of health system it began to trace mainly on the mono causalism or mono causality and all the uh, uh, subsequent development of the drug industry uh, in germany and in other parts of europe and the growth of the capital the investment in the pharmaceutical industries and all that and ultimately the horrible experiment in the nazi holocaust camps we all know what followed from that now however in that time an alternative movement was also starting firstly in united states of america the workers were forming a type of cooperative which they are called which they are calling mutual aid group and uh, friendship groups it started from the late 18th 17th century and the early 19th century numerous such cooperatives were began to be built mostly in usa because they felt that it was impossible for the there was no public system of health at that time there was only private and it was almost impossible for the workers to buy the private health care so they began to form cooperatives where they could accumulate some amount of uh, fund uh, they gave one day salary and so on and so forth so it is possible for them first to get the uh, services of the physicians and finally establishment of the dispensaries and all that and when karmax um, interacted with this uh, with some of these pioneers of the working fund and how they are working in order to mitigate the problem following this interestingly in 1873 the prussian government under bismarck it passed the first universal health uh, universal professor <coughs> why not you just concentrate more on because very important thing that you are talking about but why not just concentrate more on what he has spoken about and what are the lessons that you learn and what can you build up an argument based on that i think that will be these are all important and very relevant but then because time shortage and all this there yes, <laughs> is very... i mean, i i am shorted my thing 
now uh, actually uh, and actually i am speaking i am coming to the point that is uh, nowadays is called bismarckian policy and leninist policy of public health actually public health has also two dimensions uh, i have read in professor bakhti's uh, previous writing one is to mitigate the workers uh, 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 suffering so that they remain within limit they do not make hullabaloo or so on and another is to empower the people public health also has two dimensions as professor has said rightly now uh, the migration then if we conclude here now additionally i think uh, these migrants uh, mostly in, in if we consider india after the, the lockdown there was a row between the state governments about who uh, because many a times these migrants were thought to be as covid carriers or covid bearers even uh, uh, i'm sorry to say that cm of my native state is declared as covid express so the the, the the migrants were thought to be carrying covid and um, various states did not give them entry and we saw the plight that occurred in uttar pradesh and other parts where they were not being allowed entry because they were thought that they were spreading covid and also uh, there were some local reports local media reports that when the migrants reached the village as professor bakhti uh, has rightly pointed out they made a social ostracism because of this propaganda that they were carriers of um, covid and so on and so forth in one instance in bakura uh, they were not allowed to stay in the village and they had to make some temporary arrangement in a tree and at that time a cyclone was coming in west bengal and orissa and that badly affected them in many of the places this social ostracism against the migrants okay. was very severe I means this added an additional problem or additional dimension to them and uh, as has been the case um, regarding again uh, the vaccination now i have made some uh, very preliminary survey with my students on vaccination they are also the migrants had some asymmetric sufferings the reason is that uh, these uh, vaccination center declared some domicile certificates and so on at the beginning from term panchayats etc which many of the migrants are missing so they could not take the vaccine at their village they could not take the vaccine at their destinations so the amount of the non vaccination is, is higher among the among the migrant people so they uh, so the migrant people they 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 suffered their loss of their livelihood and they uh, suffered the uh, the vaccination there was very little vaccination and also they were socially castigated as if they were some um, people who are causing harm to everybody now uh, what happened when the migrant returned home this is also very interesting aside of that social castigation and my student ashish pal is present here i did a study of the some of the uh, old um, uh, artisans of gujarat who returned home after the first lockdown now when they were at gujarat whatever they were earning may agree it may be it was 
far greater than what they could uh, expect at their home as an unskilled worker. So there was a loss of livelihood. There was a loss in the lifestyle. And also, they could not find any gainful employment in the village because they said that they are many days away from their home and they lost their skills and all those things. Okay, but what is the issue, Professor Atanu, just to why not sharpen your issue? What exactly the issue that you're raising that could be very contributory for the entire discussion. You know, these are the examples, supplementary notes can be given later on also. But what is the issue that must really uh, provoke, uh, rather, uh, you know, encourage Professor Bhakti to, you know, respond to you or other people also, other participants. So I think, I would request you to just suspend the issue, concentrate on that and focus on uh, that will be better. Yeah, the issues are, see, uh, issues are very clear. Actually, I'm giving this example just to point it out some, uh, clarify the point. Huh. Many a times in a grand narrative, we often lose some of the pains and the pangs with the common people feel. So I am personally not much in favor of any grand narrative. It may be new. It may be of any type. I mean, that is why I, I love yeah. Professor Bakchi's books and etc. because they present them in a very nice manner without going to any grand narrative. Whatever it may be, still if we consider, uh, still if we consider some of the issues, the first issue is obviously skill formation. That's, that is the important issue. That what type of skills we should give to these migrants, we should provide these migrants so that they have some gainful employment. Another is the identification issue. There was talk about a uh, other card and a universal ration card so that they can get, um, it is not uh, the domicile, uh, it is not something which is fitted, fitted at the domicile. Whether it is possible to engender a type of this universal card or universal ration card or something which which they can avail uh, without being pinpointed to any place. Now, again, um, <laughs> as the issues come, the problems come. As as these issues are raised, as if we if we really pinpoint that they that they should be given all those things. The question arises about the uh, watching power of the state and so on and so forth, which we feel all over the world is facing. So naturally, if we want to think of cohesive development or the development, then one thing we must have to admit that migration we cannot prevent because people will go for migration wherever they will find better job. Uh, as I'm giving the example of Bismarck, there's a study that Migration out of Germany declared considerably after the health scheme, which was declared by Bismarck. Not though USA were giving them higher job, but the cost of health reduced in Germany, and that prevented the outflow of Germans to the um, to USA before the First World War. That was one finding. Now, so if the basic provisions are provided. Can the, uh, by the state, again, we are thinking of state, there is a problem as Professor Bakhtia says, state is not something which is, which already we, the Marx, Marx has taught us, state is, is not good for okay. all. Okay. 
Okay. So, uh, so actually, my concern is about basically I pointed out the healthcare because nowadays in the in the all the media propaganda, it appears that is individual is responsible for this pandemic. Okay. They you you include include your individual um, awareness, individual distancing. So what is the what should the state then do? Why yes. why this pandemic came to my door? Because not all the countries are suffering from Omicron. So why is this situation as a way? So instead of positing the problem on the individual, and also uh, there were some findings we all know that individuals' resistance to this COVID disease depends also on nutrition, which is again a function of economic and social deprivation and so on. Okay. So, so this is okay. my issue that is I think your time is time is up now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so happy for your the nice question that you have raised. At the last one is an individual focused media attention, isn't it? Last point that you're talking about media media related to media. Last point that yes. you talked about Regarding related to media, media on focusing individual. the individual, focusing the individual that you see. You're accusing that is the system that is there. <laughs> no, uh, that's talk about state and uh, it's not the people, not the public, not the poor people. Like, you know, yeah, I remember some film is being, uh, film uh, uh, is uh, made out of the migrant workers. And there's I read a lot of critics on that. And there's a lot of censorship also. So I think there's a problem. And you know why it is happening in the media and the government and the power structure. You know, that's what the relationship, all that. That's the, but I must thank you so much, Dr. Professor Otunu, for having highlighted, in fact, a lot of time is there. Uh, not much of time is there for us to, but we could have heard you more. Professor uh, uh, Bhakti, I think you took the points later on for all the four discussions after the points being taken note, uh, note of, perhaps you'll be able to respond at that time. I think that will be a better arrangement, sir, isn't it? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, shall you, then in that case, shall I request the next person, next discussion? Set a request, Professor Arup Sen. Professor Arup Kumar Sen. Yeah. So, am I audible? Yes. Am I audible? Yes, yes. He's going. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, Professor Babji has provided a very powerful critique of geopolitics of development and he also tried to establish close connection between the imperial policy or the so-called civilization mission of the West and wanton violence inflicted on diverse, uh, a large number of people in different parts of the world, particularly in the Middle Eastern countries and Africa and also Central America. So I feel that there is a racial dimension as, uh, that is embedded uh, in Professor Bhakti's argument that there is a clear racial dimension to this kind of imperial policy uh, over a long period of time. So what is important in conceptualizing development, I feel uh, what comes to my mind is the development of underdevelopment thesis of the famous Latin American intellectual 
and a gundar frank uh, 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 and this thesis was posed sometime in the 1960s of the last century so frank argued that we cannot formulate a dependable theory and policy of development without taking into account the social history and social and economic history of this underdevelopment so if we do not consider this social history and economic history of underdevelopment so how can we conceptualize a dependable theory of development so this is very important so professor bagji has very extensively discussed about the global sin and the migration crisis and this migration crisis is also connected with this imperial policies so let me shift the focus to the domestic part of the story uh, the case of india so if we revisit the developmental trajectory of india uh, in the post independence period so what is celebrated as development but there is an untold story that if uh, in the past 50 years of the so called development uh, it is estimated that 60 million people were uprooted from their soil by the development projects themselves and which uh, we can call in a sense it is some kind of uh, primitive accumulation in the marxist sense and this primitive accumulation has intensified in the neoliberal regime that we are going through and professor sunil ray was talking about what is happening in chhatrisgarh so this is the same story uh, being repeated in jharkhand odisha and other tribal regions so in the name of development large scale displacement of people as well as violence is inflicted on people and those people mostly belong to the tribal community and the dolits so there is a, a clear class and community dimension to this victimhood of violence so now the question comes that time has come to interrogate the dominant paradigm of development uh, being floated uh, in the uh, administrative discourse as well as in the media so the agriculture is treated as a very uh, backward sector uh, and the journey from agriculture to the uh, industry and service sector is treated as a, 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 a story of development but this is highly questionable if we uh, uh, feel that the recent <coughs> crisis in in india in the post covid period in the wake of the covid 19 crisis so we find that the statistics tell a different story that it is estimated that between 2018 19 and 2019 20 during this period of the additional jobs created in the indian economy more than 70% that comes to around more than 30 million jobs were created in the agriculture sector on the other hand only 5% jobs were created in the so called manufacturing and construction sector so this is very important at in reimagining development and because you know that the large scale displacement that the, the large scale uh, displacement that took place in the 50 years of development so those people many of those people became part of the footloose labor under neoliberalism and who are the migrants and who during the covid 19 the kind of migrant crisis that we witnessed that large number of people are leaving the cities and going back to their villages 
so in the coming days there is little possibility that jobs will be created get back their jobs in the urban sectors so what is the way out i feel that there is a possibility of rethinking development in terms of reviving agriculture and in this context the success story of cuba comes to my mind actually in the late 80s after the collapse of soviet union and the soviet bloc countries the cuba faced a major crisis because cuba was dependent for trade as well as other inputs on the soviet bloc countries so what did cuba uh, do to uh, take care of it so the cuba radically changed this uh, paradigm of development and the revived agriculture in a completely different sense uh, which we call the agroecological revolution in cuba and just just you, you tell you no. tell us you tell us how do you how do you think about is this agricultural you know reoriented reorganization of agriculture that could be and as very interesting element of change yeah, in a new yeah. paradigm that yeah. you think about yeah. now, now now how, just why don't you just explain and how, how do you conceive agriculture could be an important cog in the wheel for development yeah, yeah. i am just i am just reflecting on that what cuba did that that revived agriculture by integrating the present knowledge of agriculture and combined that with the the result of the agro agro science research in cuba and they were disseminated to the rural level through the school education and and it is a combination of expert knowledge and traditional peasant knowledge and they did it through the cooperatives so there is a connection between this revival of agriculture for development as well as decentralized strategy because previously before the 1989 crisis the uh, 75 to 80% of the agricultural land were concentrated in state farms but what happened because of this ag agricultural revolution that only 40% land were in state hands and the rest to were encouraged to be converted into cooperatives and the cooperatives were run on a, on very democratic principles because the ordinary members of the cooperative has the last say on the kind of development that will take place in their domain so okay. i feel so i yeah. feel that cuban uh, i am not suggesting that india should go the cuban way so because the whether there is a lot of debate that whether the chinese road to socialism or the soviet road to socialism that were old debates but we should reconceptualize development in the present context where the neoliberal onslaught is taking place uh, 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 in a, on indian soil so this is my broad point that reimagining development in terms of revival of agriculture and agro based industries and questioning the dominant paradigm of development which celebrates large scale industrialization and we know the recent farmers protest in india uh, amply testifies that that agriculture is still important because so many people depend on their livelihood for agriculture and the kind of uh, questioning that they took of the farm laws uh, regarding the corporatization of agriculture that is a relevant pointer in uh, mobilizing solidarities as well as reimagining development so i would like to stop here 
Okay. Uh, yeah. So in that case, in agriculture, hello. In agriculture, you suggest that. Uh, uh, hello. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Can you hear Dr. me? Oru. Oru. Yeah. 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 So agriculture that is suggest that well in the cooperative form and land ownership private land ownership should be abolished in that case in the pulling the lands together and then doing it, isn't it? That is what you are precisely talking yeah. about. Yeah, because okay. I am not suggesting it in a very crude sense because if private ownership is cannot be given farewell uh, in in our in an agrarian society like ours because the collectivization debate will come in that context so that it will be a forceful uh, takeover of land. I am not suggesting that. But ah, I think well, that, that cooperative has enormous possibilities. Uh, that's okay. That's I understood now. That is a very interesting point that you're making. Actually, the kind of suggestion, they're very cryptic and very pointed. I must say that is a very interesting uh, contribution that you're making for the new paradigm and how do you really tackle this question? You know, question of inequality, question of discrimination, question of, you know, you know, this uh, not only the 40%, I mean, the one third of the population were vulnerable. How do we limit the vulnerability to the part one, part one third of the population of a country like India, you know, who are always. So anyway, these are very interesting things that you talked about. And thank you so much, Dr. Roop. Uh, thank you. Then may, may I now request Dr. Manshi uh, to contribute to this discussion. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Ray. Uh, thanks for uh, moderating so well. And it is a great honor to share the platform with Professor Bakchi. And I'm meeting him for the first time, e-meeting him, to be honest. And thanks, Arjun, for having me here. Uh, I will start with a very um, a strong line which Professor Bakshi has already defined cohesive development and take it to uh, the point of climate change. And uh, the three main pointers which he talks about is health, education, and cognitive development, where people have opportunities of doing the kind of things uh, they would like to do. Uh, ironically, if I bring in the capitalism or imperialism uh, perspective into these uh, pointers, uh, we actually deviate from the very point of cohesive development, which uh, Professor Bakshi also talks about it, that it also means that human beings should respect the boundaries of nature, which they cross mm -hmm. at their own peril and the peril of other living beings on earth. And I think this is where uh, we uh, should be able to start linking how imperialism and climate change have been actually uh, so closely in a vicious cycle, or I, I, I would rather say nexus uh, to that extent. And inequality is at the root cause of it. You know, and if you, if you, um, if you look at the literature of uh, United Nations and OECD who are trying to moderate between mm -hmm. the countries, and also we saw how... Um, horrible, the COP26 uh, discussions uh, went on and ended with almost no uh, decisions on these things, that how uh, developing uh, countries and developed countries have these, uh, you know, economies or dynamics between migration and the impact on climate change. If I look at these points and look at the way India is dealing with migration, both out migration and in migration, and what does that mean to climate change? What is uh, interesting here is that we are producing in excess and exporting both human resources as well as our food, all kind of water resources indirectly and all to the imperialist uh, nations or the Western countries, so to say. 
at the same time in the country we are actually receiving impoverished people uneducated human resources so it is a double whammy i will i must say in, in in our country's point of view that we are at a double loss in terms of migration and if i link it with climate change because a the out migration is uh, at a larger scale and it is loss from from both hands from the natural resources human capital and the in migration is actually giving us more losses um, from both ways because the consumption is increasing we have more uh, hands and mouths uh, to consume than we have to actually produce for the west so um, here also comes the humanitarian side of it and and we have been one of the generous countries in the world uh, as far as migration is concerned uh, unfortunately not in the recent time with the rising uh, problems we are unfortunately trying to also copy the west in terms of our own narrative of imperialism and at the same time if i am looking at last 2 3 decades of uh, degradation of environment in the guise of development that is also an alarming situation and when i um, hear all the experts from india also talking in cop26 it gives me uh, more shivers because if we are uh, blaming the west uh, um, of they doing wrong and if we want to use that as our license to do wrong and uh, i would like to uh, bring uh, professor uh, uh, vijay parshad's point here when he was uh, trying to defend why india still has um, uh, can do a lot of things well because the west is still doing i think this is where we have to really um, put a check for us i'm not going to talk about the problems which are um, around us because we all have problems and uh, all the countries have these problems i would like to uh, really bring few points for future directions because the youth wants to get some hope of what we are doing and what our generation and senior generations are doing because what we are going to do today is going to impact uh, tomorrow it's not about that we have to plan for tomorrow but we have to also think about what we are going to do today and i i was just uh, interested to really bring a line from uh, marx uh, because we have been talking around uh, his uh, his way of thinking and uh, you know critiquing capitalism and try to link with professor babke's work uh, interestingly if if marx marx was here today um in this era of uh, climate change and talking about uh, inequality because we are seeing inequality as a other side of cohesive development which probably may not be that uh, linear but if i have to uh, really look at his work and see how he he dwelled into uh, talking about capitalism and uh, uh, he was not talking from the anthropocene side only very much like uh, professor bakshi also talked about that human have to know their boundaries of the nature uh, given the uh, this situation and uh, keeping aside all the problems we are facing from climate change and inequality is at the core of uh, climate change discourse apart from the environmental degradation where do we go from here and this is where i have very simple naive lay person questions for professor bakshi and with those questions probably i will uh, stop uh, my points uh, because he is also talking about under development in his work and i also saw professor ray your work also talked uh, touches upon these aspects of under development i would like to propose here uh, the the uh, the idea of de development 
because this whole climate change distress is out of the very uh, you know discourse of development that we want to develop and we want to reach somewhere if i have to talk about india uh, let's say that we want to become something like i don't know what hong kong uh, singapore uh, new york manhattan you name it paris london uh, we are trying to become like that are they climatic uh, are they sustainable even from the climate change perspective are we checking those standards do we have climate change index to check whether they are really um, adhering to climate change indexes and so that we can follow them as a as a you know um, as a panacea which we should not but uh, somewhere we have to really uh, question that uh, point so if we are talking about development per se and if you uh, both of you professor ray and professor bax you have already coined the idea of underdevelopment i want to bring in the idea of uh, dedevelopment here because the whole development discourse is actually deviating from the climate change point you mean to say redevelopment 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 dedevelopment re 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 redevelopment d e d e it is already oh, redevelopment uh, redevelopment yes, okay it fine. is already Very in the it is already uh, going in the climate change discourse in the commons discourse uh, where uh, we are uh, talking about let's not get into the development discourse and talk about redevelopment and i'm going to bring some examples de damming has started i just read a day before yesterday that uh, canada is also uh, get, getting very very aggressive in going de damming scandinavia's countries are going de damming japan has already started doing it italy uh, and you can just start naming um, us and all if we have to undo lot of things because we are talking futuristic for, for our younger generation and we have to face the climate change i would like to really um, uh, see climate change as an opportunity to talk about redevelopment and start undoing it because if we continue doing what the west has done and despite knowing that they have destroyed the not only the economy not only the social fabric in terms of equality or inequality they have also uh, actually laid the path for all the developing countries particularly south asia and middle east countries to follow them and also uh, you know distress the climate change point but here comes the silver lining that because climate change is not region specific can climate change become a binder or or a connector to really start talking about it we were all very hopeful in cop 26 that climate change will come uh, in discourse will bring some kind of silver linings which uh, has not but maybe why we not? have to why restart dr mansu why not just focus on what exactly how do you conceptualize dedevelopment undoing it so i am going to define dedevelopment here but i just wanted to make a point that climate change has to become now a connector and also uh, somewhere a stabilizer of this imperialism uh, way of looking at things so uh, if how do we do that if i have to really i'm not a expert of international issues i will focus only on the country specific issues why are we racing for the more development more economy when the human growth the human development index is reducing and unfortunately even if we are racing for development our economy is also uh, going down the drains so why not really uh, start talking about things where local people and you gave the example of chatisgarh why not we change the governance system itself and find out some way of polycentricity 
not really making a monolithic way of centralized unfortunately in in the country we are going towards a monolithic way of governance and i'm talking about completely other way of going towards decentralizing and really talk taking uh, the and i mean i can't say this in the official platform here but most of the indigenous communities uh, the government is, uh, is almost uh, declaring them as anti nationals declaring them as not good for the development and all i think this is where we have gone wrong in last 50 years 70 years i must say okay. so the empowering of the indigenous community is at the core of really resolving the environmental degradation so it, it, i mean i think as a, as learned or so called educated people like us we are also uh, responsible somewhere to make this divide between government and the indigenous people because the way we project them so we if we really want to address climate change and also reduce the migration urban migration or international migration and all i think we have to go back to the roots and start talking about bottom up governance if not possible but at least polycentric governance where the representative of the local people including all kinds of northeast uns you know uh, unrest uh, chatisgarh unrest jharkhand unrest all kinds of tribal unrest is okay. also they are the real real caretakers of the natural resources i think urbanites have forgotten how to take care of the natural resources so we have to at least give them the power to take care of what we at least have now to save it if not degrade it further you know so i will stop here but i want to discuss more on uh, de development as an idea with uh, professor bakshi and that's where i meant that we have to go back there and we have to undo lot of uh, you know wrong things we don't need 20 lane expressways in the country it is just a misleading uh, idea of economic development by making all this dmic corridors by making another nuclear plant we are not heading anywhere can we redistribute the money or the funds to the grassroots to the indigenous people i think that is where we have more answers because we cannot solve climate change and again i will i think i was happy with professor sendika's point here the larger narratives cannot solve climate change cannot solve migration cannot solve human growth human growth is a grain issue it is not an aggregate issue so that will only come from the bottom up so uh, i will pitch for de development as an idea thank you so okay. much professor ray for this opportunity and i wait to hear from professor bakshi on it <laughs> thank you so much manshi dr manshi so nice uh, number of issues that you raised was a very enlightening and quite uh, stimulating we will take it later professor bakshi yeah. will be able to respond later on now may i request dr gopal krishna <coughs> dr gopal yes <laughs> so you are here i mean finally <laughs> yes uh, yes dr gopal um i will focus on the uh, latter part of uh, professor bagchi's uh, uh, talk today uh, and uh, i will be first of all i would like to recollect uh, one of the writings which professor bagchi wrote several years back in front line in front line professor bagchi wrote a three part uh, article after nobel prize was awarded to professor amartya sen and i remember a sentence from that article 
where uh, Professor Bakshi underlined that uh, the Nobel Prize given to Amartya Sen was a break two decade old break from a two decade old trend where uh, only they were favored who favored uh, private property who favored free markets we said this uh, focus on human freedom focus on human capability was a welcome change but in recent years he may not agree with the whether the new nobel laureates also fall in the same category but focusing on the presentation uh, and the paper talk which uh, professor bakshi gave today uh, i will make very small 10 points which i was uh, form uh, framing while uh, i was listening to him uh, i get a sense i have read professor bakshi uh, some of his writings that i get a sense that the outrage which was inherent uh, in his uh, observation in his talk was that uh, uh, human beings are moral beings and migrants are human beings and they are also moral beings so if uh, they are human beings they and in and we know that they are human beings they cannot be treated as on subhumans this uh, tendency of treating human beings as subhumans by westphalian states is uh, deeply immoral it is quite unethical and in one of his papers i uh, recollect that the very opening line of professor bakshi was engaging with the question of morality in migration and therefore i think it's a very uh, important thing which is missing in the discourse in general so human beings are migratory animals uh, i understand from the talk and the writings of professor bakshi and like other animals uh, human beings also have a sense of territoriality and this that sense of territoriality was not very abnormal as long as those territorial boundaries were not fixed not very rigid but when the westphalian state came into being the territoriality became abnormally fixed and rigid and that has created many problems and the rights of migrants have been compromised because of that migrants are human beings and therefore the way any civilized organization ought to deal with them is to deal with them as a equal human being but the westphalian state treats only its citizens although it can be debated whether or Uh, in, in recent times in the case of neoliberal state whether that is also true but in general the westphalian state treats only its own citizen as human beings and not the non citizens as human beings or also those citizens as human beings which it approves to be uh, the carriers of right kinds of ideas right kinds of skin color right kinds of religion if they uphold those things they are considered as uh, citizens and because they are considered citizen officially citizens they are human beings and all the others are some humans it appears so the point which uh, professor bakshi makes and in fact uh, uh, although he said it in a professorial in an academic way but uh, the underlying between the lines one can sense the outrage which he is expressing uh, with regard to the inhumanity and the cruelty which uh, fellow human beings are subjected in europe and us 
and also with regard to internal migrants within the country, especially in the wake of pandemic. The Westphalian state runs away or evaporates in the face of disasters, creating refugees and stateless migrants. Or sometimes the state and the public institutions of the state, they pretend to be surprised. The fact is that they engineer migration. Their structural intervention creates uh, abnormal migration. The migrant issue raises the issue of equality, morality, justice, fairness, one being, one human being, being equal to every other human being. Under no circumstances, they can be treated as subhumans. Just because somebody is a non-citizen or somebody is not of the same party, which happens to be a ruling party, That's that right, does right. not make human beings non-humans right. or subhumans. Right, right, right. So the jurist prudential and legal imagination, which is at present enveloping us, does not inspire action as to how a state should treat people whose status as citizens or residents across several ter territorial jurisdictions are in question. The jurisprudential imagination ought to engage with or inspire the states which, uh, or public institutions to ensure that human beings are treated in the framework of equality, morality, and justice and fairness. The, uh, on the issue of, uh, uh, and this is, I'm drawing from Professor Bakshi's writings, that uh, he has noted that like finance, uh, finance-led globalization, uh, finance-led globalization led to huge migration. In the same way, the neoliberal policies are, you know, causing huge amounts of, massive amount of migration. Uh, internal, internal migration as well as internal migration. And these policies are limiting, limiting the state's function with, uh, to only providing security to the rich elite class and to the transnational corporations. Their protection of their property becomes the sole concern. Evidently, it is emerging. The new laws, although because of farmer protests, they have been uh, taken back. It emerges that it is it was aimed at uh, protecting the interest of the rich and the transnational agribusinesses. The journey of the indentured labor to the current swell of migration shows that intervention of corporation and the state is engineering displacement and uprooting. It is the state and the corporations which are engineering migration. And one issue which Professor Bakshi mentioned in passing, but it requires greater attention, is that undocumented migrants, undocumented human beings, they are being treated as subhumans. This is outrageous. A paper citizen, a paper human being, how can be more uh, credible than a living human being? Documenting the undocumented through automatic identification and biometric technologies and electronic technologies is also about profiling of human beings with wrong skin pigmentation, wrong religion, or wrong reasons, or carriers of officially deemed wrong ideas. So I think this is uh, uh, not innocent, this documentation process which is happening through Aadhaar or through National Population Register or in the name of Citizens Amendment Act, CAA, which Professor Bakshi referred to, both Aadhaar, which is a brand name for 12-digit unique identification number, it's a biometric determinism. This is akin to genetic determin determinism. 
This is akin to legitimizing eugenic thinking, which is long discredited. So therefore, any observation or any considered opinion on documenting electronic profiling, biometric profiling, genetic profiling of migrants in particular or res residents in general is actually inexcusable and indefensible. It has been abandoned, rightly abandoned in UK after the after the recommendation of London School of Economics. There, there such programs and schemes have been abandoned and such profiling will lead to genocide which IBM contributed to in Germany in 1930s where the Nazi party managed to get the census data of the Jews. So I think I think Giorgio Agamben is right when he says that uh, the all these biometric profiling which is happening in a specific context they will ultimately lead to concentration camp regime which is unfolding towards the end and the, my last point is that uh, there was an observation with regard to anthropocene and i think uh, this is uh, we need to dig uh, rigorously interrogate this term because uh, this uh, creates a potential for uh, the corporations and businesses to hide behind past human beings, present human beings, and future human beings. It is not Anthropocene. This is Corpocene. The corporations are not, you know, innocent uh, uh, institutional technologies. They are, they need to be interrogated. They, their very uh, conception needs to be interrogated. And the and I always agree with the uh, point which Professor Ray has made in his recent writings about alternative paradigm of development. I said an alternative paradigm for well-being for human beings and other species and planetary peace is required. Their alternative organization is required. Naturalization and normalization of the unnatural and abnormal externalization of environmental and human cost and the negative external externality internalized in the modern economics is indefensible. Thank you. So, uh, thank you, Dr. Gopal. It's very, very interesting uh, some points that you raised and all. I really thank all of you so much for your very important contributions. Uh, <clears throat> may I request Professor Bhakti or shall I uh, ask anybody in the any participant apart from the discussion, any other participant is there who would like to raise some questions and all that, or later on that can be done. First of all, the discussions discussion can be taken up and Professor Bhakti can uh, respond to them. May I request Professor Bhakti to respond to all the discussions point? Well, uh, first of all, let me thank all the discussions. I'm so glad to see that all of them are really interested in the welfare of human beings and not just in, in, in increasing uh, power, economic power, and so on. And all of them have raised very relevant issues. In order to uh, uh, reply to them, let me try and create this kind of envelope. First of all, we have to recognize that the whole world, except Cuba, is now ruled by capitalists, or as Sunil would like to say, capital. Uh, and the political economy of that is that capitalists have one primary motive, as Marx said, accumulate 
accumulate, that is Moses and all the prophets. And that drives capitalists in all the countries in the world, including our country. So in order to really have a different world, we have to dislodge the power of the capitalists and the power of the people who collaborate with them. In our country, one of the greatest mistakes that we made after independence is not to abolish landlordism. There are no land reforms in this country, except in Jammu and Kashmir, except in West Bengal in a very partial manner, and in Kerala. And it is the alliance between the landlords and the capitalists that has ruled this country. And the landlords never wanted their agricultural laborers or the peasants under their control to <coughs> uh, have any freedom. I'll give you two examples. At a time when I, I can't remember who was the chief minister of uh, Uttar Pradesh, I was then working for the history of the State Bank of India. And the State Bank of India had a, uh, the government had a scheme of giving some uh, under IRDP scheme, some loans to agricultural laborers, small peasants, for buying goats and other kinds of things in order to increase their income. And in Uttar Pradesh, uh, the, uh, the scheme was not being implemented. Ultimately, the general, uh, the, uh, general manager uh, of the uh, State Bank of India there met the chief minister said, sir, this is not being implemented. He said, well, if we give the loans to these characters, they will, they will not work for us. Why should we give, give them? That's a, only a tiny example. You have, have, have read uh, my late friend, Pradhan Horishankar Prasad's work on the uh, what, what happened to the irrigation projects in Bihar, in this own project. The landlords would not allow the irrigation water to come to the uh, uh, lands of the uh, tenants because in that case, the uh, interest that they get from the uh, loans, which all the time mount, will be lower than the increase in income that they expect. So the irrigation projects were not really fully implemented until after a long time. And the uh, continued dominance of particularly the upper castes in most parts of India uh, also percolated into the ideology. The ideology which uh, protected the, the caste system as the current ruling party uh, protects it, it uh, completely believes in the monocity. It also percolated in the treatment of women. At one time, the South India was quite different from North India in the treatment of women. And the sex ratio was much better in the South, Southern Indian states than here. But in Karnataka, where the ruling party has been ruling for quite some time, the sex ratio has plummeted from 19, uh, 2016 to 2019-20. It has now become almost as low as in Haryana and Punjab. And this has been the effect of the ideology 
that has been propagated by the uh, Hindutva Wallas and also which has been naturalized by many in the uh, breasts of may, many upper caste people. So the point is that unless we also address this question of who rules the country and how to dispose them and how to uh, get rid of the completely dehumanizing ideology which was propagated by monocity. There are great uh, other thinkers in India like uh, Gautam Buddha. In the Upanishads also, there are also many uh, uh, bits of uh, 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 writings which are uh, still valuable. For example, Sarno Bhubhaktu, Sarno Karabhami, the kind of slogan that uh, Ravindran Tagore introduced in Shantiniketan, that we will all uh, work together and we will all enjoy together. These are also there, but the dominant system became the caste system. There are revolts against that system throughout history from the time of, uh, before in fact, uh, Gautama Buddha or Mahavira and down to the Bhakti saints and so on. There are great poems written by the Shangam poets in Tamil Nadu, by the Bhakti uh, tradition in, uh, in Bengal, in the Assams, by followers of Shankaradeva and Sichaitanya and Lalansa, but they did not, that did not percolate to the uh, uh, general population. They remained confined to the marginalized people and the upper caste saw to it that the lower castes and the poorer people remained uneducated so that they do not get hold of these documents. So my first proposition is that one has to think about how to change the whole, not only the whole political system, but also the social system, how to change the mindset of the people. And one of the basic requirements is that the state must be very active in that. The state, not just as a centralized entity, but as Dr. Mansi uh, uh, Bhargava has suggested as a decentralized entity. That the, uh, uh, I come to process Autonomous Gupta's point. Yes, public health is extremely important. And public health is something that should be public. There are two or three things that cannot be, even in a capitalist society, left to the private sector. Uh, you know that Cuba has a lower infant mortality and under five mortality rate than uh, the United States. Whereas Cuba's income is probably not even one-tenth of that of, of the United States. And uh, among the capitalist countries also, the United States does much worse in terms of longevity, in terms of in, in infant mortality than a country like Canada with a lower income, than a country like France or Germany. And that is because in Canada, France, or Germany, there is still, or Netherlands, there's still a working healthcare system. So the point is that in order to really get health to the ordinary people, we cannot depend at all on private hospitals. And in our country, what has happened that the uh, proportion of money spent on health by not only the central government, but but most state governments has remained extremely low. 
whether you take West Bengal or you take Bihar, Bihar does extremely badly, not because Bihar does not have resources, but because all the time Bihar has been unable to get rid of the upper caste landlords. And uh, in uh, while we talk about the uh, progress that India has made in uh, economic terms, and sometimes it is claimed that we are simply going to be the next to uh, China in a few years because of our economic growth. That is not going to happen because economic growth has already declined. In Hunger Index, India does even worse than many of the most of the sub-Saharan countries. Now, again, in order to get there, as uh, uh, Dr. Gopal Krishna suggested, or was it somebody else, that we should have a universal uh, uh, public distribution system, a universal ration card, a universal identity for anybody, everybody, and we should not really profile anybody. And there I totally agree. And uh, uh, while I agree entirely with Arup about the need for an agri ec ecological revolution, we cannot simply depend on agriculture for that. For simply reason that even in Cuba, if you look at it, the proportion of employment provided by agriculture is not the majority. It is doctors, it is educators, it is the distinction of being a small country, but having produced vaccines for hepatitis a long time back. It is the only small country which has produced a vaccine of its own against COVID-19. And this has all been the result of the high uh, uh, standard of medical education in Cuba. Uh, again, I recall a, a, a conversation with a, a woman uh, doctor, a young woman doctor in New York when I was working for the UN J Journal of Development Planning. Uh, she, she was uh, trained in, in the, uh, in fact, many of the black uh, Americans at one time went to Cuba in order to get trained there in medicine. And she was trained there and she had the opportunity of coming back and working in the States. I said, you earn much less. She said, no, but at the same time, I have much greater satisfaction from the work that I do there. Uh, some of you may have seen the uh, film of Michael Moore, where he took the victims of the 9-11 uh, attack, the, not the victims, but the people who were, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, trying to rescue the people in that building, but were not treated properly medically in the United States, he took them to the, the uh, to Cuba in order to get treated. So Cuba is a model in terms of education, in terms of healthcare. Cuba, what uh, Cuba did after the Soviet collapse is that earlier on Cuba had state farms which are primarily devoted to the production of sugar which was bought by the Soviet bloc countries. With that gone, what they did was to uh, diversify their agriculture and give ordinary peasants more incentive to work on their own. And therefore, as Arup said, they created a large number of cooperatives there. 
Now, in, the, in our country, there is a team which visited the, uh, uh, the China in uh, uh, around 1957, and they came back and uh, they cooperatives for the Indian organized the cooperatives. Because without land reforms, you cannot really organize cooperatives. And in the cooperatives also, you must have a proper uh, incentive system. China, before it became a predatory capitalist country, when it began its reforms, did the right thing in introducing the responsibility system there. So, yeah. Out of stuff in the Ethiopia that I think not for but also the rest of the world because they are also uh, our brethren. Uh, we have suffering people in the United States, in in Britain, in Germany, in France, everywhere, and so it is for them also that I think that what we should do is to de-develop in the sense that profits should not be the primary motive of of uh, final growth. We, we can get there because of some demographic changes that have already taken place. In many countries of the world, particularly in Europe, in Japan, in China now, the rate of population growth is much below the replacement level. So population is sinking and their real needs are going down. What we need to do is to serve this uh, low, uh, smaller population with the kinds of things they need. They need proper uh, nutrition, they need uh, uh, tasteful food. You cannot always give them the rations that are recommended by, uh, by doctors. Uh, I mean, you know, given the choice of between, let us say, tasty chow mein and uh, just, um, uh, let us say, ordinary gruel and rice, who would not choose chow mein? So the people must have choice also in consumption habits. They must have choice in other areas. But all this must be done primarily by using renewable energy. There is enormous scope for renewable energy in this world. I have already presented a paper in an earlier degrowth session on this. And this possibility is increasing all the time. Newer and newer. Uh, technologies are being invented. In, instead of lithium-ion batteries, we now have hydrogen-ion batteries, and uh, other technologies are uh, being invented. Already in Canada, there is aircraft which has been flown, uh, which has flown on electricity, and now electric cars will uh, be there all the uh, all around the world. Sweden has. Uh, uh, invented green steel, so we can now have steel without using carbon. So the carbon footprint also can be lowered there. I won't go into all the details. There are also microalgal technologies because I am not a technologist. But in India, in the United States, in every country of the world, there's enormous possibility for replacing the fossil fuels by, uh, uh, by uh, renewable energy of uh, solar power, water power, tidal power, wind power, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, we should use those, those kinds of things to have public control of practically all the uh, renewable energy uh, resources, not giving them over to 
Reliance or Adani. And uh, there should be decentralized control of this. There's already uh, under the left hand government with uh, Dr. Chaudhuri in charge in Sundarbans, they, in small islands that introduce solar power. And that can be done on a small scale in all communities in India. But for all that, again, as a what we a change in, uh, in not only the political setup, but also a change in the ideological setup, in the social setup. And as uh, Dr. Bhargava said, Adivasi, uh, most blatant victims of all the so-called development and the protection of Adivasi should be one of the primary goals of whatever we do. Uh, 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 under the UPA government, there is a good forest law, which said that uh, you, uh, first, uh, you cannot displace any forestal, forest dweller uh, without providing proper habitat and uh, without replanting the trees. But the current government has not disregarded that law, but also has amended it so as to permit corporate sector to uh, exploit that. So with, with the kind of dispensation that we have, and we are likely to have, even with the Congress coming to power, you cannot really change the basic structure of society or the basic ideology of the country. It's a long haul, but you are young. All of the, all of the people who are with whom are elected are young, and you have a long future to work for that. So I'm hoping that you'll work towards changing the political structure, social structure, the economic structure, and the uh, ways of thinking of ordinary people by educating them, by giving them proper healthcare. Uh, as far as co cognitive development is concerned, you see one of the uh, uh, points made by many of the white men against the blacks who are often descendants of slaves that they <coughs> did not have enough intelligence. How could they have? They're often born to uh, under, uh, fed mothers, they are born underweight and they are not properly nourished. And people uh, do not gain any cognitive uh, uh, ability after if they are undernourished until the age of four. And this is true also of, of people in our country. So it is, it is these basic things that must be provided to the ordinary people and the, the uh, products will come from renewable energy sources and, uh, and the governance will be decentralized as far as possible. Are you through, sir? Yes, I, have, I do not want to elaborate because the, this is an utopia and the utopia can be uh, <laughs> made into a book as uh, Thomas More and uh, Asula Nikkei Gwyn has often done in her science fiction books. <laughs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> thank you so much. <laughs> I know it's very nicely being responded each and every issue and it's quite expensive also at the same time. Uh, <clears throat> any, anybody, any other participant who would be interested to uh, raise any question or issue or supplement Anything? Is there anybody? Uh, Dr. Arjun? 
sir there is a question which has ah. come yeah, that is why ahead. dr bamadev sigdal ji uh, pranam professor bakshi we en we enriched much more from your lecture at the cost of our human resource and have said uh, exploit our south resources in the past most of the western countries developed how do you respond to it how we have to utilize our labor force so that we can obtain sustainable development in south asia so more of a north south developing and developed countries debate sir how do you see that cohesion happening as we go forward well there are countries which have done on their own quite well china is a leading example china was also horribly exploited by the western powers although china was not formally occupied it was devastated by several wars in the 19th century two opium two opium wars by the the wars by the uh, by the taichungs and uh, later on the boxer war uh, the attack by the Ch japanese at the at the time that china became uh, a communist country in 1949 china's in output was less than that of india and per capita income was less than that of india and now look at china china's economy is now the second largest in the world china's people have a much larger longevity than india's china is, is at the technological frontier of, of of the world they they are in fact competing with the united states in not only uh, the cyber technology areas but also in outer space they have in fact uh, uh, created a space station of their own they have landed on the uh, black side of the moon and they are going further in that and the uh, united states and nato powers are quite scared of the growing power of china we had even better because at the time of independence we had a much better educated workforce we had great scientists among them like megna uh, uh, sha cb ramon was still alive uh, Mingda Saha, uh, Vikram Sarabhai, S.S. Bhatnagar, and several others. We did not utilize them because they were incapable of doing that under the kind of uh, political economy that uh, was created in 1947. So it is not a question. Sure, the Western countries had exploited us, but we could have got out of it easily. There are two other uh, countries. One is a country and uh, another is this, an island, South Korea and Taiwan, certainly. They got uh, an, uh, military aid from the United States when they are coming up, but they utilized that aid. Philippines also was given a lot of aid by the United States, but they did not it did not come up because it was ruled by the landlords. But in South Korea and Taiwan, they got rid of the landlords, and then they, they are now so developed that South Korea is now a member of the OECD, and Taiwan's per capita income and Singapore's per capita incomes are greater in some cases than that of many European countries. So I think it is not a question of uh, simply relieving the uh, experience of exploitation by the Westerners, but being self-reliant and going ahead on our own. Okay. Uh, 
Anybody? Any other question? Dr. Simi? You, I could see your photo. Uh, no, sir. Thank yes. you. Yes. <laughs> good afternoon. So I don't have any question per se. So I was just looking forward to um, concluding the program. But please, over to you. Uh, to me? Yes, sir. You want me to conclude now? Uh, yes, sir. You can take it forward as you wish. <laughs> You're feeling tired, is it? No, no, no. Oh, I Not at all. It has more. been so enriching, sir. <laughs> uh, it has been a true honor. Yes, sir. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, how do how do I conclude? I do not know. It's such a very interesting ending. You feel like hearing more and more, Professor Bhakti. Uh, you know, his perspective and understanding of the global scenario, the global politics and economy, at the same time, the Indian economy and society, uh, something very deep, <clears throat> but something he has shared with us quite a bit and uh, very challenging, but the whole coming back to the, to conclude, uh, the, what is that I should say that, uh, back to what I was speaking in the beginning is that, uh, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, migration crisis he talked about. Uh, this is my, my perception, my understanding. But migration crisis is a problem, definitely is a crisis and the human problem. What Gopal was talking about, humanity. It's a human problem, whether it's in India and Mexico or any other country, that's fine. But much more important, what Professor Bhagji wanted us to concentrate or implicit in his understanding, in, in his presentation is that, or rather he has explained also, why such migration crisis occurs. You know, that is something which we need to concentrate on. We need to know, if you want to prescribe a solution, you need to know why such problem has occurred. Now media's focus and the media of the most dominant powerful people they focuses on migration as a problem. Definitely, it's a problem. They wanted, they want the people to confine their attention to the migration issue. They never want to go beyond it, but why such migration takes place? It is precisely here, Professor Bhakti has brought it out very clearly, the why such migration at the international level, not to talk about the national at the moment, the white migration is basically the motive is nothing but exploitation of the resources, exploitation of the people and different ways, whether by what cartling, whether by, by force of the military power, these, that, and all that, that has been happening. It's not today, for last two decades. This has been the story even earlier, but the story was a different shape in a different way altogether. Now this has changed quite a bit. So this is the kind of design, a conspiratorial design being made by what is called the international powerful people. And when you see the national government, they need an alliance for whatever the reason that you must know. And therefore they say that yes to yes, no to no. They never know how to antagonize. That is what has been the story all over. It's very clearly spoken, clearly shown. Now, when it, count, when it comes to Indian situation, you see the migration. Yes, that's story. We have heard number of presentation of the migration stories. Now, 
there are very few one or two presentations out there that talk about why such migrations take place. Who are the people speaking about the structural deficiency? Who are the people talking about structural unemployment? Who are the people talking about the structural poverty? Very few. It's the structure. Tomorrow there is another kind of a problem. Natural calamity, for example, huge natural calamity. Who become the first victim? Look at the study of tsunami, Oxfam study. And who are the people first victim? It is the vulnerable, most vulnerable people who become the victim first. And the structure is being oriented this way, whether you talk about caste structure, whether it's the social, I mean, social structure, talk about what the economic structure, what is the political structure. And all this structure being dominated by what is called the power, power-centric. Well, if it comes to the international, it is the powerful people. Dr. Manshi was talking about what's called very importantly, you know, this ecological climate change and de-development. De I really like this point. The point is that, yes, resource extraction. And there are studies that establish the fact that 90% of the climate, what is called the CO2 emission is responsible for the six countries of the world. And the more historically that everybody talks about, I don't want to elaborate on that point. Now the question is that you do have resource unequal distribution. You do have, even the, you know, there are many other things that dismantle. Like for example, Kuwaito protocol was there in 2012. Some sort of a terms and conditions were imposed by everybody equally distributed. Attempt was spent. America destroyed it. And after the Copenhagen, America came and destroyed it. You know, one after another, you have in the Paris Commune, Paris, uh, Paris, and then even the lesser CO2. What is this CO226? COP, COP26. Yes, you know the story. Why not the fate? Why and why it happened to that? They will never know. Because that Professor Bakshi was talking about the main mantra is the accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Is a capital. Is a capital. Who captures which market? Which market has the most share? And you have to enter there whether it is a Congo or India or what is called or Equator. Equator has become barren. You know why? Because Equator was asked to supply all the raw material-based resource-based, natural resource-based products to the other countries of the world, especially the developed countries of the world. So the kind of trade was patterned in a way that, that they exported in the name of development on the foreign exchange. But in the process, the entire ecological disaster has taken place. There are huge studies on that. Now, why does it happen? Now, this is a story which everybody knows, many of us knows about it. Now, the question is here, which Professor Bhakti has touched upon, and some of you have all talked about how to get out of it. Now, how to get out of it is something, one way of that, that within the same metabolism of capitalism, you try to find out some way out. You do universalize your healthcare facilities, you do universalize the other public sector proper efficient functioning. These are the things which have been there. Now tell me, these are the suggestions which are there even yesterday also, even few years ago also. It has to be done, it has to be, it has to be, nothing is being done. I was doing an evaluation of what is called, uh, you know, Food Security Act on six states. Just imagine, can you imagine? Even the, when the food is getting distributed to the poor people, they do not know who the poor are. This is, I'm telling on record. Can you imagine? This is the story, even today. What is that we are going to do now? 
Now, only way out, then what is the way out? How to go about it? That is one question which is being not being uh, not being talked too much about it and all that. That's something which is very important for us to take note of. Now, it is good that we have been narrating. It is good that we are explaining. We're good that you are analyzing the situation. But to how to change the scenario, how to bring about a change, that is something where we need to concentrate more and more. It is precisely where that we work together. Even Professor Bakchi also was there. And cohesive development is something which he found. And the basic mantra, basic principle of cohesive development is solidarity. Is solidarity at different levels. A solidarity between the, all the developing countries of the world together. Have a common voice. Why taking this kind of thing? That has been happening. There are many stories that say that, well, if you do have the conflict of the two nations, there is a who is gaining? It is the, it is the defense apparatus or defense, defense cell, cell of the defense uh, parts, particle, you know, what I feel, and all kinds of weapons, weapon market. Let there be a fight between India and Pakistan. There will be a weapon market for the American and some companies of the world. Let there be a fight with some other countries with together. And there will be a weapon market for the other, some companies of the world. Let the people fight with each other. That has been the story. It's not today I'm talking about. It has been the story forever. Now, you need to bring about a change. How do you go about it? Here I'm talking about the solidarity between the people together. It is solidarity of the third world countries together. They're deprived. That is what I call the cohesive development here. At the, the regional level, at the local level, at the international level. If you see the power structure, which has been operating everywhere at the dictate of the capital, and they mediate the capital, mediate the interest to the political, dominant political power, political party in power. It is the power structure of that one. It needs to be dismantled at any cost. At any, maybe it's going to be there at some stage or the other. But unless until that is being addressed systematically, theoretically, and also convincingly, as Professor Bhakti was talking about, people have to be educated, people have to learn, know, and they also un unlearn and see what should be done and all that. That is how it should go about. So it is this solidarity between the people and solidarity between, between people and nature to reflect on Manshi's point. People and nature. You need to know how to respect the nature. Well, we need to know. Everybody knows that you need to know, but never happens. If that would have happened, CO, uh, CO, uh, CO2, 26, COP26 would not have failed. Copenhagen would not have failed. And they will not allow that to succeed just because the fact that you have something in design. They'll never allow that to happen. And therefore, the question is that it is the solidarity that has to be really. Uh, uh, has to be there between the human beings, the deprived people altogether, whether you talk about the deprived caste, socially deprived, so religiously discriminated, deprived people, economically deprived, women being deprived, politically deprived, at the regional level, similar to the deprived countries of the world together, have to have a common voice to fight against this kind of a power structure which is dominating and being mediated through the capital, through the political system by the capital. This is the what exactly this discourse is all about, but this is what my conclusion, well, my, this is my understanding. It may not, one may not agree or agree, but there is something very different. But I must say that every one of you have really tried to contribute, did contribute considerably well, but that if the time would have permitted, we would have learned much more 
from every one of you uh, uh, very significantly. And last, and of course, Professor Bhakti, perhaps um, personally, I learned quite a bit about this international dynamics, the way things have been happening and all that. And it's a very, it's a hugely learning process for every one of us. I thank him profusely for what all that he has spoken today to, to enlighten us. I thank every one of you, uh, 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 Dr. Atunu, Professor Atunu Sengupta, then Gopal Krishna, uh, Manshi, and of course, Dr. Arup Sen, all of you. I thank you all so much to be here with us to contribute and hope again we'll be meeting sometimes later at some stage. Thank you so much. I thank again, uh, uh, you know, uh, Impri, Dr. Arjun, to have given this opportunity to be with them and uh, to all of you. Thank you so much, Dr. Arjun. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Sunil Ray, for uh, your wonderful thoughts. And uh, I'm uh, delighted and I express my pure honor and privilege uh, to, uh, to propose the formal vote of thanks on behalf of the IMPRI Center for Human Dignity and Development, uh, Center for Development Communications and Studies, CDEX Jaipur. Um, to our eminent speaker, Professor Amir Kumar Bakchi. So uh, we, are, we are absolutely delighted and privileged to have learned from you, to have heard you. Uh, please accept our gratitude. I would also like to uh, thank all our discussants for the day uh, who spoke passionately, uh, Dr. Mansi Balbhargav, um, Dr. Arup Kumar Sen, Professor Atanu uh, Sen Gupta and Dr. Uh, Gopal Krishna. Thank you to all of you for your enriching inputs. And lastly, and most of all, the moderator of the series, Professor Sunil Ray. Thank you so much, sir. We are learning uh, by your guidance and by your mentorship. Thank you so much. I would also like to uh, thank all our uh, attendees here on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. Thank you for watching the program. And to all those who will be watching us later, the program on uh, YouTube and also listening to the program on different podcasts. Thank you. And I wish you all a very, very good day and please stay safe. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot. Awesome. <laughs>